difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. And... Scott Tobias. We all believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. Attention, attention. This week's movie will be a pair of films about communities that spring up in the middle of war and the odd ways people try to push back against the insanity that surrounds them. Tasha, would you like to give us the details? I would. Adapted with liberties from Chicago Tribune reporter Kim Barker's 2012 book, The Taliban Shuffle, a chronicle of her time as a war correspondent in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot stars Tina Fey as Kim Baker, an ennui-stricken employee of a major news network who's tired of providing meaningless copy for others to read on the air. To correct this, she signs on for a stint covering Afghanistan. Her base of operations, a boarding house in Kabul that's home to journalists, their security details and assorted other outsiders. Collectively, they call their community the Kabubble, a reference to the reality-distorting properties of trying to live a Western lifestyle, replete with sex, drugs, and other excesses, in the middle of a war-torn, deeply conservative country. In that way, it bears a strong resemblance to the 1970 hit MASH, director Robert Altman's breakthrough film set at a mobile army surgical hospital, hence the name, during the Korean War. So have the experiences of being stuck in the middle of a war changed in the years between Korea and Afghanistan? Have the movies depicting that experience changed? And how much do the politics and personal points of views of those making these movies shape them? You bring the olives, we'll bring the martini shakers, and maybe we can figure it out together. Follow the zany antics of our combat surgeons as they cut and stitch their way along the front lines, operating as bombs, <laughs> operating as bombs and bullets burst around them. Snatching laughs and love between amputations and penicillin. The camp for the 4077, the MASH unit at the heart of MASH, has many notable features, from the swamp that serves as a bunk for our three central characters, to a makeshift driving range at its outskirts. But the feature that captures the essence of the film is the set of signs at the heart of the camp, giving directions and mileage to locations like Moscow and New York. They both serve as a reminder that the world beyond the 4077th and the war that brought them all to Korea still exists, but also that it's far, far away. What they have instead is a kind of makeshift version of the life they once knew. Not all the rules of home apply, and life gets periodically interrupted by the duties that brought them to Korea in the first place, performing surgery on the wounded soldiers brought in by helicopter, sometimes scores at a time. That creates the great divide at the center of MASH life and at the center of the movie. Between emergencies, it's summer camp for grown-ups, filled with pranks, drunken hookups, and bacchanalian exuberance. When the casualties roll in, the 4077 becomes a place of blood and frenzy, as not enough doctors try to save too many soldiers using meager resources, and, on at least one memorable occasion, working in the dark. War is absurd. War is ugly. All the same person can do is to go a little crazy to deal with it. In the face of such obscenity, the only proper response is reverence and rebellion. That's the defining attitude of the film. Not coincidentally, it's also the defining attitude of the 60s counterculture in response to the war in Vietnam, which was still underway as the film hit theaters. Any echoes of that conflict were entirely by design. Working, loosely, from a script by the once blacklisted screenwriter Ring Lardner Jr., who was adapting a book by Richard Hooker, Altman attempted to invoke confusion by not referencing Korea. The opening crawl, making the setting clear, was added at the studio's insistence. Altman let that freewheeling attitude seep into the way he shot the movie, too, working in what would become his signature style. 
improvising actors talk over each other on a crowded soundtrack as the camera floats freely through the scene, using a zoom lens to train the focus on a particular element. It is, to say the least, a daring way to shoot a movie. His unconventional approach prompted stars Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland to try to get him kicked off the film early in production. Years later, Sutherland would say, We thought that Bob should probably be committed to an institution for the mentally unbalanced. Obviously, Gould and Sutherland failed in their attempts, and it all worked out pretty well for everyone involved. But there's that reference to insanity again. Only one person cracks over the course of MASH, and that's the by the book and petty and hypocritical Major Frank Burns, as played by Robert Duvall. He's driven mad in part by the war's inability to follow the rules. He lacks what the other characters have or pick up with experience, the ability to laugh at the abyss. The film laughs with them, but it recoils too, and that's something the characters might lose the ability to do. There's a chilling shot towards the end in which the gang carries on unaware of, or just inured to, the body being carted away in the background. This image casts a shadow over the high-spirited fun of the football sequence that precedes it, if not the entire film. MASH is an unconventional movie that takes a long way back around to the inescapable truth about war being hell, whether or not those in the thick of it can find a way to laugh about it. So let's talk this movie over. Unthinkable just a few years earlier, it's part of the first wave of director-driven films that took over movies for a few years in the 1970s. How does it hold up these many years later, on the other side of a bunch of movies that ran with its irreverence, and a TV series, which Altman didn't like, that attempted to bring its attitude to the small screen on a weekly basis? So, everyone, MASH? Well, I think the question of if it holds up doesn't apply to Tasha and I because this was both of our first time watching. Sure. Yeah, I Mm -hmm. guess so. But but it does certainly apply to the experience of watching it in 2016. Well, I think the bigger question was, was, you know, this is it's one of those films that was so groundbreaking that it's almost kind of hard to see its innovations. I mean, Altman went over to direct a lot, a lot more Altman-esque movies. There were a lot of imitators just in generally, you know, I don't think anyone ever took the improvisational approach quite as far as Altman did. But, you know, it, it is the, the general attitude here. General attitude. Uh, <laughs> general attitude? The general yeah, attitude, attitude here is... is uh, We're uh, all saluting is, podcast is, people. Is, is such, a, uh, uh, such an early 70s sort of new Hollywood um, uh, tone to it. So it's almost like... I'll tell you something. I first knew about the movie MASH because my mom would tell me about it because she went to see it. And it was really... Huh. And, and my mom being a very, very proper uh, lady from, an, from a... Uh, uh, not at all in touch with the counterculture or counterculture attitudes was was shocked and you know well into the 1980s when the tv series was still on would, would talk about the horror with which she viewed the movie mash <laughs> uh, was, it, was and, it because of the content or was it because of simple things like the fact that I, I, this was one of the first mainstream movies to use the f word um yeah the i think the general uh, obscenity of it uh, was not uh, <laughs> general obscenity. it was not something that uh, that jived with my mom i mean i just my mother uh, retained that kind of feeling for the graduate for mm. for decades and it wasn't so much because of i mean the sexual content was part of it but it was also just things like seeing a naked breast and like how incredibly shocking and groundbreaking that was and people just reading reading things from the time it seems like people had the same reaction specifically to the profanity like it was just an unheard of thing and it's so difficult to imagine to watch this movie today and imagine what it felt like back then both for people like not used to this style of filmmaking not used to like this method of camera movement not used to overlapping dialogue at all that that is a feat of imagination that is beyond me it's really hard to approach this movie like anything like I I would have approached it if I'd had the sense to watch it like 20 years ago it must be kind of like hearing Bob Dylan and sing for the first time. Like, <laughs> this is not what people 
people who are played on the radio sound like, you know? Uh, it's it's very odd. But I go ahead. Scott. Well, I'm just saying I, there's just no part of this film that isn't radical and extraordinary to me. I mean, this is this was 1970. There there's no film like it. I mean, is there a film that, that, that you know, the between the overlapping dialogue, I think it's attitude about I mean this is plainly a film about the Vietnam War. I mean you you mentioned in the introduction that the 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 Korea aspect was sort of just t- thrown in there by the studio. I mean the references to me are very plain that he's ta- about what he's talking about. So that attitude is is new. You know the gore that's in the film is 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 new. The profanity is you know it, it's just it, there's the style of it is completely original. There's just no part of it that isn't just astonishing to me. I mean and, and I and I know it can be tough to appreciate it. 50 years later when, when, you know, Altman made a bunch of films and, and a lot of people, you know, in, in the seventies were, were the seventies and things sort of developed from this film. But I do think it's kind of a, you know, a legitimate sort of landmark picture. Where's catch 22 fall for you in terms of the dark humor about the Vietnam war and like the ridiculousness of the, the military and the irreverence of like dealing with all of these emotionally violent things. I think it's really the style that stands out for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I guess I mean, in terms of sat, I mean, you know, Doctor Strange Love came out before this mm. too. So, in terms of satirizing war, um, that that had been done before, but just not in this way, you know, and just the way he treats the ensemble and goes in and out of conversations and, and really doesn't, you know, it's a film that it's full of jokes, but a, a lot of the jokes you can barely hear in some in some instances that he doesn't overemphasize anything. It's just it's a very inhabitable environment, which is the one thing that uh, about Altman that I love so much is that is that every one of his films is a world uh, that we get to explore without him necessarily, you know, directing us in a really hard way towards one point, you know, point of emphasis or another. I think also the balance is very delicate. At one point in the production, there was a push for the studio to remove the gory surgical scenes. And I think if you don't have that, Altman, you know, pointed out that it would just be a wacky comedy without that. And it kind of defeats the purpose. You need, though, you need that to balance out the hijinks. And those scenes are still shocking today. Yeah, they're awful. I mean, the, the I, bone saw. Oh, yeah, the bone saw <laughs> and, and the fact that he's getting his nose scratched while he's just sawing away at somebody's leg. But I mean, in part, what one of the things that's shocking watching those scenes today that might not have been shocking in 1970, the blood was probably very shocking in 1970, but the primitiveness of like what they're wearing and the tools that they're using. Mm-hmm. You know, they're wearing cloth robes that are just wicking up all of this blood. And I mean, you can see how primitive the surgical theater is, not just because it's, you know, in a war zone and they're they're dealing with what they have and what they can move from place to place, but because it was 50 years ago. And it, it's just, it's astonishing. They're so casual about the surgeries. And part of that is meant to communicate that they're really good surgeons, that which is meant to justify some of the awful, awful things that they get up to. But it's also, you know, they'll be in the, in like elbow deep in somebody's guts with blood spraying in their faces and they'll be like, oh, he'll be fine. And again, that's meant to convey their competence. But I, every time I watch one of these surgeries, I was thinking, he's not no. going to be fine. All of his blood is on your chest right now. Yeah. All There's of it. A, all that. But usually, when blood spurts out of a, someone's <laughs> neck like that, uh, like a faucet, that usually is a bad sign. I guess that that aspect of it kind of made me uncomfortable, though. And and I I, I get it. The uh, contrast that you know the movie's going for, but. The humor is like it's one thing for, you know, these hijinks be happening outside of the actual surgery. But any joke or any like kind of, you know, glimmer of wackiness that happened as a soldier was dying was 
really uncomfortable for me. And I, I just, I had a lot of trouble connecting to a lot of the humor in this film for reasons I think we'll go into. But I mean, there are definitely a lot of funny parts, but those specific funny parts just landed really flatly for me. I like the moment in the theater where they all start singing uh, when the lights come back on which is a song I wasn't familiar with. But there's a, a tone to this movie that I just absolutely hated. And as you say, we'll get into that. Scott's making the scrunchy <laughs> face. It's, it's kind of awesome. But there are a couple of moments in the film where people drop into pop culture in order to respond to a situation. And I find that just much as I find like looking at what surgery might have looked like in a field hospital 50 years ago, fascinating. I find them reaching for that pop culture moment together collectively to respond to that situation, both kind of funny and kind of sweetly wry in a way I think much of the movie might have been reaching for and just didn't attain for me at all. Well, I mean, you know, I think they're jerks, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I would I, use stronger language than that. Yeah, right? I mean, I, and I think the film, the film is, you know, I, I mean, this is another thing that goes along with Altman and would sort of follow him throughout his career uh, of him being sort of a misanthropic artist. I mean, this is a this is a film that holds a lot of things in contempt, and uh, and, and including including you know many of the characters. So, uh, I you know, I, I don't necessarily think. I mean, I think you can maybe look at people like. Uh, you know your your Tom Skerritt's and your uh, Donald Sutherland's and Elliot Gould's as being irreverent in the same way as as Altman might. Maybe they're his um, surrogates, but even that I, I think is a stretch. Um, you know they're, they're jerks, and this is and I think it's also a, it's a bit where you know in terms of using humor in that setting, I think that's it's a it's a natural thing. I mean, if you watch like a detective show or something, there was a, a famous episode of Homicide with Robin Williams where he had a child who's who's been killed. And he walks in on, you know, a bunch of the uh, detectives kind of laughing it up and having a good time. It's part of their job. It's their day to day thing, encountering things that are horrible. And I feel like that made sense. Here's the thing for me, though. Um, you asked how it holds up today. And I think there are two things going on there. One is just so many of the attitudes specifically about racism and sexism just read as beyond reprehensible today. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is you mentioned the TV show and how it holds up after the TV show. The TV show had 11 years to develop some of these same characters and kind of build out how they felt about where they were and how they used humor to respond to horror and how constrained and confined they felt, both being stuck within this like one little area that they couldn't leave for safety reasons and the fact that none of them wanted to be there for the most part they were they were drafted into the war and i feel like there's a lot of that stuff like writing is an undercurrent in the film version of mash that the producers of the show were very smart to elaborate on and turn into more developed plot points this this movie feels like a really rough sketch to me of a lot of what the tv show eventually became as it became a more and more serious development of like a look at at war and humor in war and the I, way they use humor to react to specific situations i feel like is something the show kind of had to find its feet with but eventually developed into an interesting into a more interesting thing and the specific reaction the individual reactions both to each other as people and to the situation i think eventually got developed a lot better than it is here I will take Mash the movie over Mash the TV show seven days out of seven. Yeah. <laughs> I just like uh, I I think it's better because you don't have. I mean, 
I like the show. It's fine. I like Alan Alda. Uh, but you don't have Alan Alda stepping out to give a lecture about the horrors of war. <laughs> it, it, it is all. It is all there. You draw your own conclusions. You're, you're, you know. The, you know. You see the horrific operating theater. You see these people behaving awfully because that's who they are in the situation. You, you, we don't know who these people are in a different context. We get a brief shot of Duke reuniting with his wife, probably in flash forward or, or in a fantasy sequence in his head as he's thinking about going home. And that's a totally different life than this. Um, you know, I think these are people responding to th- situations they do not know how to deal with. And, and, and in some ways they are pushing their personalities to extremes in the same way that Frank Burns is. It's just a different extreme. You know, I'm not going to defend the attitudes or the behavior in this, but I also would not want a watered-down version of this or anything to kind of cut those attitudes or, or behavior in a different way. Yeah, this, I mean, I don't think this is a film that in any way, shape, or form tries to ingratiate itself. I mean, it's, it's, to the audience, which is kind of it's kind of astonishing to me that it was a hit. <laughs> Maybe it just kind of sort of caught the zeitgeist. I mean, I don't know. Them. That football scene seems like such a like a gimme to the audience. Yeah, you, you, you know, it has a kind of an, and it has kind of a raunchy edge to it that I think maybe people keyed into that. Um, yeah, like, I'm sure it's very Animal House. Yeah, I mean, the, the Animal House is the movie this kept invoking for me and me, obviously it came after, but you Me know. too, I don't like those guys either. <laughs> you know, or I don't even say I don't like them, but I, I, I certainly have a certain amount of distance between my own feelings and behavior and, and, and the way they behave too, you know, in both cases. At the cases. same kind of time, Animal House just never seemed this toxic to me. And it's, to me, it's because the characters in Animal, Animal House are overtly younger and dumber Mm -hmm. and when mash we're dealing with people who are supposedly adults and supposedly doctors educated people professionals and they're not just young and stupid they're downright cruel Mm -hmm. and cruel often and in some really grotesque ways but why is that a knock against the film i don't i still don't get it i I don't i don't know why their cruelty is some is a miscalculation on altman's part i I didn't say it was a miscalculation on altman's part but i'm with genevieve and that i found it and i found it just impossible to connect with these characters Mm -hmm. in a meaningful way and i mean i i think we're all on record as not needing characters to be likable to connect with them but i also don't buy the stance that we're not supposed to root for these guys to some extent like i think they are presented as incredibly flawed maybe heroes but they're still kind of have like they have their hero shot the movie is on their side yeah I mean, it's unquestionably on their side. It's unquestionably on Hawkeye and Trapper and Duke's side against all of the women in the camp and Hot Lips in particular. Yeah. And if you look at what what she actually, what she and Frank actually do within this movie, they're they're both crucified for some extremely small crimes. I, I would I would say that they're crucified also for being hypocrites too, for being for being the sort of holier than thou characters who are no better than anyone else, and I would say that is why they are singled out for for torment by the char- the other characters in the film. Frank is eventually singled out for being a hypocrite, and I mean to some degree he, I, I guess he deserves what happens to him. Although it's really unclear to me what happens to him. Does he actually lose his mind, or is it just that we're in environment? It's it's really one of the things to me about the film that feels so poisonous is that it's so much about these extremely entitled characters who do whatever they want and always get away with it, and that's where the film feels like it's on their side. And the fact that Trapper 
punches Frank out, admittedly for doing something hypocritical and horrible and unconscionable. And he gets away with it with, you know, his commanding officers like you're under arrest. And he's like, yeah, whatever. You're not going to do anything with that. And then when Frank punches him out, he's next scene being led away by MPs in a straitjacket. Did he really lose his mind or was for some reason discipline magically enforced on him when it wasn't enforced on the guy that we're supposed to be on his side? I think he's pretty clearly not in in his right mind at that point. I don't see that at all. I mean, he looks annoyed and discomfited. Mm. But I, like he doesn't seem to be fighting the straight jacket. Yeah, at all. I mean, I I saw the uh, Hawkeye shouting like he's lost his mind or whatever is just purely like covering his own ass. Like mm. I didn't see it as him actually being concerned that he had gone crazy. I saw it as just another way of him being cruel to this character. I mean, well, here's the thing: like ultimately, Trapper and Hawkeye and Duke are bullies. And they're really vicious bullies, and they're bullies that. I mean, band the first together. thing they do is steal a car. <laughs> like, well, that, that's. I thought that <laughs> was funny, funny. <laughs> because he's uh, he's very specifically reacting against somebody who's trying to bully him, and that's one of the very few cases where the movie uh, this comes up a lot and in this kind of humor, in specifically cruel humor. He's he's not exactly punching up, but he's punching on the level when he steals the jeep. Like some guy that he doesn't know tries to bully him who has no right to bully him and he reacts in an irreverent way. When he and Duke start picking on Frank within five seconds of walking into that tent, they have no way of knowing that he's a hypocrite. They have no way of knowing how awful he is to other people. They just immediately – they don't see him as a hypocrite. They see him as a target. They see him as somebody with obvious weaknesses, somebody who's bulliable, and they immediately go into it. And that's where they lost my my interest and my ability to relate to them. Wait, you after, guys look so sad. This is after Frank. You know how Frank we felt watching Mashed This is how. This is after Frank um, blamed the, the the kid for no. Nazis. This is well yeah, before that. Yeah. Okay. They they walk into the tent. He's teaching the the other kid to read via the Bible. And okay. they just immediately they pick on him for being eyes. religious. Pay, yeah, exactly. I, I, I just have kind of a yes and <laughs> response to this. I mean, I mean, I, I yes, you're correct. They are, they are not. They are bullies, and it, to some degree, is more. The film is more on their side than anybody else's side because in this situation, they are the closest to to you know saying that we that we encounter. But it doesn't take me out of the film. I just I I still really en- enjoy the film and, and and appreciate it in in spite of finding some of their behavior repugnant. Yeah, well, I mean, we're closest to them, I think, because they do acknowledge that the situation that they're in and the, 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 that the war that they're in is ridiculous and not something to be uh, taken seriously or, you know, that, that they're uh, um, really, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, but, but, but war is to be taken seriously. And I understand like satirizing the events and the culture and the attitudes that led to that war, but the actual experience of being in war and ex- of experiencing death, I think like, it's possible to be too cynical about that. And I think this crossed my personal line of what is too cynical about that. So- I don't have a problem with cynical. I mm-hmm. like cynical. I like bleak humor. I like black humor. I like whistling past the graveyard humor. But my point about punching down. <laughs> thank you, Genevieve. <laughs> my point about punching down is they hate the situation they're in. They hate the, the cruelties of war. They hate the death around them. And their best solution to that is to sexually humiliate a woman. It's to inflict over more and pain. Over and over. So. So this is yeah. This is not the conversation I was expecting us to have, but I was expecting us to talk about Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, mm-hmm. who undergoes a, a sort of like 
it's fun, funny. You watch the, watch the film. It's almost like she's abused into being brainwashed yeah. by the end of the movie when it turns into a cheerleader and and Duke's mistress. It's it's a uh, quite it's quite the evolution. So how did how did that how did that read to you? I was so confused when like it it switched to the football game and she's a cheerleader and I, I actually had to stop and go to the Wikipedia summary and be like, what did I miss here? Like, wh- wh- where was the transition? And there there wasn't. But <laughs> according to Wikipedia, uh, they characterize her cheerleading as, quote, an effort to fit in, uh, which I don't know. I guess I buy that logically, but that doesn't uh, fit in with anything in her character's narrative. And yeah, to me, it's just like another example of that being a really problematic character. I think she's just really poorly written. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any effort to to suggest that she's trying to fit in or that she's been brainwashed, that she's drunk the Kool-Aid. I think it's just that, I mean, due to the time that the film was made in, due to its particular satirical bent, due to Altman's particular point of view, I couldn't say. Nobody in this film, nobody who made this film understands that being sexually harassed and sexually assaulted and put in this environment of being considered a a prize by bored men could be emotionally damaging. It just, it doesn't occur to them that what happens to Sally Kellerman's character would have effects, like long-term effects. People who are bullied consistently don't turn around and go, I think I'll be a cheerleader today. Like that's just, it's not part of a narrative that considers her perspective at all. Cause I don't think the film is interested in her perspective at all. I, I'm not going to disagree with that. To me, that is not a deal breaker for enjoying the film, but, but yeah, that's certainly not, that's exactly, that's how I read it as well. I think it's fortunate that Sally Kellerman is a very fine performer. Who, <laughs> I think it's really unfortunate that she's a fine performer because one of the reasons I found anything related to her character difficult to find funny, she really sells her humiliation and anger and helplessness and frustration when she's abused and exposed and embarrassed over and over and over. And then she comes in and brings that to her commanding officer and he's like, so quit, go home whatever, you know, as he's sitting there drinking champagne with his latest mistress in bed. They call me a hot lift and you let them get away with it. And then you let them get away with everything. And if you don't turn them over to the MPs this minute, I'm, I'm going to resign my commission. And God damn it, hot lips resign you. God damn commission. I mean, this is the epitome of both bro humor and rape culture. They're in an environment where it's hilarious to bag nurses, where they're constantly grabbing the nurses. There's the, the moment really early on where Duke just like walks by a complete stranger in a bathroom and grabs her and she laughs it off and says, unhand me, sir. And what I saw in that moment was somebody who's been in a highly sexually charged environment for so long, she knows how to gently deflect it. And that's the kind of thing you have to do in a highly sexualized environment where you may or may not have a choice on a regular basis. But then it turns around and portrays them as wanting it, too. You know, like like if, if, if the film was, had been consistent in the female officers having this attitude of they have to wear this armor and kind of laugh along with it, but still rebuff, it would be one thing. But, you know, we see them 
giggling and enjoying and taking part in these antics too. Yeah, that was just a, a little difficult for me to reconcile. This is a conversation that we're going to have tonight. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're, you know, we will probably talk more about this in the second half. Yeah, we're kind of cannibalizing uh, some of the topics that we had. But on the other hand, there's a whole lot to say about how these exact same things come up in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Yeah. So. I don't have a huge defense of the way Hot Lips is treated in the, in, in the film, really. I mean, it, it, the overall arc of the characters, you, as you describe, is difficult for me to, to defend and reconcile. But I will say that in the grand design of the film, which, and I think, and I, which I think we almost make a mistake in burrowing into to it too closely, in the grand design of the film, uh, the cruelty to which she is subjected makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, this is a film about cruelty and slaughter and and uh, people who are you know living in this very strange place where just these chewed up bodies are just delivered to them once in a while and they have to kind of deal with that and I mean I guess we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next segment about being in this strange place that's both in war and away from war where certain aspects are intensified where the the pranks and the relationships everything is kind of amped up but i just think you know the grand design of the film is about cruelty and about blood and about just a, a really harsh attitude towards the wars this is 1970 this film is being made i mean this is this is uh, i just can't imagine what it must have been like to watch this film with vietnam happening in, in a film that is absolutely referencing that that war without forget the, the titles at the beginning i mean those are those were of course added on i mean i just think it's a, it's a, it's an amazing film if you really try to imagine the context in which it came out both on a content level and on a form level there was absolutely nothing like it right well and i'll buy that you know but i'm and i don't think tasha is talking about the experience of watching this in 1970 we're talking about the experience of watching this in 2016 and that is a very different experience and i think you can still recognize the daring and the artistry and the style that is there while not being able to connect to it because of these modern problems because i'm just on the on the side of people that the film doesn't care about i think you're 100 percent right in that it hurts the discussion of the film that we've drilled down so far into this one specific thing for me it's hard to get over that hump because that one specific thing is the thing that poisons the film but i think that there are also a lot of other things that are really relevant in the film that we should talk about as well mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess we, we can get into it all in the next segment. I just have a thing about up applying an understanding of the world in, in 2016 to a movie that was made in 1970 is, I think, a difficult thing. And I, th I think the attitudes of, of the time and the, and the context of the time ha have to be you know, paramount in really considering what the, what the, what a film is, what the film's trying to do. I think, I mean, I wish I had the context to, to understand what this film felt like to people who, you know, the, the Vietnam era was the era where people started actually being able to watch the war on television and understand what the war was and understand what their families, what their friends were going through instead of these people disappear and then, you know, they die and they come home in, in shiny lacquer boxes. They actually got to experience what the war looked like. So looking at something like this at the time that kind of takes, that rehumanizes the war as opposed to turning it into televised horror, televised non-entertainment, I think is a very interesting way of processing it. But it's still, you know, I... I was 
six months old when this movie came out. It is very difficult for me to understand how people at the time would have seen it. You can also see their treatment of hot lists as part of the continuum of abuse that comes from, you know, from shells down to, uh, you know, from the, from the, the shells and gunfire warfare down to uh, the disrespect that, that, that's given to them by the people above them. I mean, I think it's a matter of, of you know it's kind of what's going on in some ways in a microcosm it just happens to be the the form it takes is, is the you know the ways men are cruel toward women and it's in the context of a larger uh, situation in which everyone's cruel to one another i mean you know it's, it's simple to say depiction is not endorsement and, and yeah i think ultimately in some ways these guys are the heroes or anti-heroes of the film but i don't think we're necessarily supposed to be on board with everything they do and i don't know that that's sort of a rah-rah moment i think the scene where she goes and talks to, to colonel blake that is the most connection you have with with Margaret Houlihan, and certainly the moment where you see her being most human, and and and, and you kind of feel her frustration and the dead end that she comes up against too. I mean, it's not. I'm not sure it's it's coherent or cohesive. The the, the arc of her character, that the the it is her behavior at the end is kind of bizarre, uh, but it, at the same time, I don't know that's quite as as simple as as you're making it out to be. I mean, for me, it's just. She fights back against what she sees as this tiny impropriety, and she's punished for it. And then she does what she's supposed to do. She goes up the ladder, and she's ignored. And then she goes further up the ladder. And you actually have the scene where the man who is in charge of checking out her complaints sits down with her abusers, has a drink with them, talks football, and says, screw her. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I talk about rape culture, that's what I'm talking about, is just this environment of no matter what a woman does, it's wrong. When you talk about the like the larger cruelty of the film, that's why I found the football uh, sequence at the end so satisfying because it took us out of that kind of like the this misogyny and the toxicity and put us into a very masculinized environment where it was men being cruel to each other on an, an equal field and doing horrible things to each other in order to try to equalize that field in a way where it was very clear that both sides are cheating. Both sides are not really playing by the rules. Suddenly it started to feel instead of that punching down feeling of let's pick on somebody who has no recourse, who's helpless and who's humiliated in a very personal way to let's all pick on a bunch of big burly men exactly like us uh, in a way where no holds are barred. We're just going to bash our heads against each other. And no matter what the other side does, we're going to come back again. You know, it's all about this sort of like macho feeling of, well, they drugged one of our guys. We're going to beat up one of their guys. He called me a racist name. I'm going to insult his sister. There's just a feeling there of of much more equal sides. And, and by the way, the direction in that scene is really, really fun. Like, I wish the more of the movie had been not that level of hyperactivity and energy, but that level of unequal playing field. I'll offer one more bit of detail in defense of, of Altman kind of knowing what he's doing and distancing himself from Hawkeye and Trapper is, is that apparently the scene in Japan was in the movie and out of the movie and in the movie and out of the movie. And the reason ultimately it was left in was because Altman loved the shot of those characters and their golf talk stepping over bodies without even thinking about it. You know, the sort of like the amazing shot of, of these this golf clothing and, uh, you know, it's casualties of war. And then it's just sort of second nature than the step over the bodies. And I think, I mean, the shot I mentioned earlier of, of all of them playing cards, uh, um, hot lips included, as a body is carted off in the background, I think that kind of kind of shows you what 
what happens to people in war. Oh, and the television show is awful. Did I get a chance to say that? <laughs> I hate that show. Maybe work it into the second it's, half. It's a good... uh, well, we could easily be here all night talking about this, and we have a lot more to talk about in the second half of the show, and I'm sure we'll be looping back to some of these topics, especially in the context of Whiskey, Tango, Foxtrot. But we're looking forward to hearing your feedback to MASH. This is clearly um, the most contentious episode we've done. Um, no, it's so... not. <laughs> Sorry, um, knee jerk. In terms of recent feedback, why don't we talk about the most recent episode, which looked at the the witch or witch, uh, <laughs> and and the wicker man. We actually got a lot of response to that episode, more than we, we can read in there in, in its entirety here. We might be posting some of it to nextpictureshow.net, so check out that site. Uh, let's hit some highlights here. Uh, Scott, what have you got? Well, one of the first questions we addressed was whether either of these horror films were scary. As part of a much longer response, a listener named Jason writes, I think being scared by a horror film is a fringe benefit, and many confuse being startled with being scared. More important for films like this is to crawl inside your head and live there, making you question the how and why of your own life. I return to The Wicker Man because I get different things out of it depending on when I watch it and my own mood. I get no pleasure from your average slasher flick, with the occasional exception. If a film gets our atavistic lizard brains to go, what the bleep, on occasion, I think it has succeeded in doing what the genre is aiming for. So Jason and his atavistic lizard brain uh, liked both films, whether he, whether he found them scary or not. Not everyone was so convinced by the witch, however. Tasha? So a listener Nate wrote in to say, I didn't enjoy The Witch, not because it wasn't scary, but because viewing it in real time and without placing it in the context of a feminist coming-of-age story with commentary about our common fairy tales made it seem like a crazy reactionary flick that sides with the people burning women that they thought were witches. By making The Witch real and by not reading into the subtext while in the theater, it seems like the film is saying that stereotypes are real and that people have every right to be scared of certain things. And yeah, you should maybe think about burning them. This is a really ugly thing to have in a film, even with the progressive subtext. Nobody would put up with a film like this set in Nazi Germany or fascist Spain. The director created something that works in theory or in post-screening conversations, but is absolutely dismal in the theater. And I think this has more to do with a really awful reactionary text rather than simply being not scary. It's funny. I, I didn't have that reaction, but that's kind of what I, I feared this film would be when I first read about it coming out of Sundance. I thought that's actually kind of tasteless to make a film in which all those people who were killed in, in the witch trials, this is set several years before the witch trials, but like justifying those actions. But I, I that kind of disappeared when I watched the movie. Did anybody else have that kind of kind of misgiving as they, as they watched it? Not when I was watching it because I was just so transported by the experience mm. and by questioning what I was going to experience next. I mean, it didn't it's it's really interesting to me that Nate feels that this film works in post film discussion more than in the experience. For me, it was the other way mm -hmm. around. Yeah, I, I just don't think I, I, I don't think it comes out. You don't leave the film thinking that was a weird message that film sent. It's like, this is the world, this is the interesting world that I visited. I, I, I just, I don't think the film is, is implying that in any strong way. Maybe it comes to that almost accidentally or by implication, but I didn't find it tasteless in any way. I certainly didn't find it tasteless. I do think you could make an argument for this interpretation yeah, okay. after the fact, sure. thinking about it, but the emotional reaction wasn't that way. Yeah, I, I agree. Finally, the central conceit didn't work for Eric either, right, Genevieve? Right. Eric writes in to say, I am kind of baffled at how Tasha and Rachel felt that the witch endorsed an organization that steals and mashes up babies. As someone with no religious upbringing at all, I didn't feel that the filmmakers were overlooking any sense of morality or judgment of the Satanism depicted. Tasha, we're not seeing a downside. The whole movie is the downside. 
Even if Thomason was taking pleasure or felt relief in the final scene, the ominous music and haunting imagery suggest to me that the audience should feel at the very least conflicted, if not pained and horrified. I agree the puritanical Christianity is not depicted particularly well either, but the witches are really the source of this family's struggle. Thomason's family does turn on her, but that's only after being tormented for the previous hour plus of the movie by the witches. Torment that directly leads to the horrible death of two children, one of which mysteriously disappears forever, and the other is kidnapped, then returns to disturbingly die in front of the whole family. Understandably, they don't take this too well. Christianity is simply the lens with which the family interprets their torment. That, combined with some basic human weakness, like the father's pride, Thomason's own anger with her siblings, paranoia, etc., causes the family to react rather badly to these horrific acts perpetrated by the witches. Yeah, the thing about that is you can blame the circumstance or you can blame how people react to the circumstance. And for me, this comes back to MASH. The situation that you find yourself in, you know, the the situation that is horror, like that is the stuff of good drama. But the way you choose to react to it, like that's the stuff of good morals. That's the good stuff of heroic characters, meaningful characters, characters that you want to spend time with. And these characters consistently react in in paranoid and petty and horrible small ways. To me, that's not a downside of witches. It's not – I mean, yes, the witches are evil – but the witches also get to live in peace and freedom comparatively. I'm no, I'm still not seeing the downside. Also, taste of butter, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. We may feature your response on a future episode posted on our website. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll get deeper into Whiskey Tango Foxtrot and explore how a contemporary team addresses the horrors of a more recent conflict. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice, and follow us on Twitter at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be knocking golf balls off the roof of The Next Picture Show studio. We hope you'll join us when we return. That suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it if I please